great hymn to love um, that Paul wrote. It may be one of the greatest pieces. Some people think it's one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written in 1 Corinthians 13, the hymn to love. Um, but you know the context now. Uh, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians obviously comes between chapter 12 and chapter 14. And they are a unit, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. So this wonderful chapter about love uh, is, is um, inserted here by Paul to help the church at Corinth uh, get along better. Uh, we're in this section on spiritual gifts. So um, you, you remember all of 1 Corinthians 12. We're a body. We function together. We're all necessary. God has given each one of us spiritual gifts. Uh, it is uh, incumbent that we all know our spiritual gifts. Uh, Paul does a list here. He does a list in Ephesians. He does a list uh, in Romans. We've looked at those lists that Paul uses in different places. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit are probably as numerous as, as, as the Spirit is creative. But again, the gifts of the Spirit, in Paul's mind, are not just natural abilities that we have. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit are tied to the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit gives these gifts to uh, Christians for the purpose of ministry. They're not given to us for our own sake. Uh, they're not given to us so we can find a career that we like. But they're given to us for, for the sake of the body of Christ. And that's why we have to uh, discover our gifts, know what our gifts are, and then it's incumbent upon us to use them. Um, it's, it's, it's not because of who we are, it's because of who the Spirit is. So if, if, if some sort of humility keeps you from using your gifts, uh, it, it really is a false humility because they're not yours, they're, they're God's. And God, God has given them uh, to each of us for the sake of the body. And if you choose not to live out, exercise your gifts, uh, you're, you're impoverishing the body of Christ. So it's important that we do it. And that's why here in this section, You've got Paul beginning in chapter 12 talking about the Spirit, then talking about the gifts of the Spirit. You remember the list, everything from speaking in tongues to interpretation to words of wisdom, words of knowledge, miracles, um, abounding faith. The list goes on and then toward the end of 1 Corinthians 12, uh, last week we saw he, he offers some offices within the body of Christ that the, that the Spirit creates, apostles and prophets and teachers, and, and he talks about these offices in the body of Christ. Um, again, the church is not an organization. The church is an organism. It's a family. So when, when Paul's talking about the body of Christ, we are, we are uh, animated by the Spirit of Christ. It's the Spirit of Christ living through us that allows the church to be the church and allows the uh, church to do the work of Christ through us. Um, but you know what's going on in Corinth. Corinth, the best way to even characterize the city of Corinth in that metropolitan, cosmopolitan, Greek, Greco-Roman, uh, Roman colony in what is today present-day Greece. Uh, it's a seaport town. It, um, uh, there's actually a word coined in the ancient world to Corinthianize, which meant, uh, in the Greek world, to Corinthianize means uh, to live sexually, a sexual immoral life. So that tells you about the city of Corinth, uh, a very much a pagan city, a, a city with temples, 
uh, on, on the Acre Corinth, there's a big hill. The Acre Corinth, on top of that hill, is a uh, temple of Aphrodite. And the temple of Aphrodite there in Corinth, in this port city, cosmopolitan city, was staffed by temple prostitutes. So you, you begin to get the picture of the city of Corinth. Uh, Paul planted the gospel in the city of Corinth. Other than Ephesus, um, Paul stayed in Corinth longer than anywhere else he stayed. He stayed about 18 months in Corinth. Uh, he stayed put and the world sort of passed by his doorstep. Um, but after the church was planted there, the Christian faith was planted there, there, there was no delete button on these people. So they brought their pagan lifestyle, they brought their Greco-Roman views of sexual morality or immorality into their Christian faith. And Paul has to work hard to help sanctify these people, help these people grow in grace. Um, they're, they're in the kingdom, but they, they're having to learn a lot about kingdom living and kingdom ethics. So what you see in Corinth, and this is why Paul had, had to pen, 1 Corinthians 13, what you see in Corinth is a very, very gifted congregation. Uh, again, the word gift is charisma, or plural charismata in the Greek, from which we get the word charismatic, uh, particularly in a theological sense. To be charismatic is to be gifted by the Spirit. Uh, this was a very charismatic congregation, very gifted congregation. Uh, these gifts that Paul's been addressing, obviously, are being exercised throughout this congregation. But the problem is, and we, we Christians do this a lot with a lot of different um, parts of our Christian life, these gifts are being exercised, but they're not being exercised with the fruit of the Spirit. Now, Paul makes a list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are two different things. So there's three things we kind of have to hold in our mind. There's natural abilities that we're all born with, and then there's uh, special endowments from the Spirit uh, that the Spirit gives to people who have been engrafted to Christ. They're the gifts of the Spirit, which is what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. But then there's the fruit of the Spirit. Um, they're different things. If you look at, first, if you look at Galatians 5, 22 and 23, uh, that, again, it's not an exhaustive list. Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit as love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, etc., self-control. So those are the fruit of the Spirit. So what you have happening in Corinth is the gifts of the Spirit are being exercised, but they're not being exercised in the fruit of the Spirit. They're not being exercised especially with love. You know, we human beings, given human nature, we can take the good gifts of God and use them in a way that God wouldn't want us to do it. I've always asked churches to always try to do God's work God's way. I mean, sometimes we, we, we do God's work, but we figure out more effective ways, more efficient ways to do it. But you got to do God's work God's way. And that's why, you know, the, this congregation is very gifted, uh, but they're not exercising their gifts in love. You know, something like gifts of the Spirit can create competition among Christians. I know you can't imagine. Sometimes gifts of the Spirit can uh, help Christians become territorial. You know, if you have the gift of administration, you don't want anybody else handling the money in the church or having to say so. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit can be used in ways that make you feel boastful. It's obvious here in 1 Corinthians that the more public gifts 
like speaking in tongues, the gift of prophecy, which we'll hear more about in chapter 14. The more public gifts, probably to use Paul's language in 1 Corinthians, the more public gifts cause people to be, here's Paul's language, puffed up. Uh, they became arrogant uh, because of their gifts. So right in the midst of these uh, two chapters on the gifts of the Spirit, Paul gives us this beautiful chapter on love because you've got to exercise your gifts in love. You've got to exercise them for the sake of the body of Christ, for the sake of others, but you've got to exercise them in love. I mean, part of what I realized a long time ago as a pastor, and Joel knows this and any other pastors in the room, is people's gifts rub each other the wrong way in the body of Christ. And sometimes we referee uh, people in the use of their gifts in the body of Christ. I learned a long time ago in the body of Christ, it's almost harder to deal with people's enthusiasm than their apathy. Sometimes people's enthusiasm just run all over each other and they don't understand that other people see things differently and see, see different ministries in different ways and our gifts get on each other's nerves. That's, it's always been that way. Someone with a gift of administration and someone with a gift of mercy will deal with a particular situation in very different ways. Um, that's just human nature. It's hard. Living in community is not e easy. That's why one of the things that drives me crazy is that large group of people in our culture now who want to be spiritual without being religious. And, or they'll say it this way. They, they, they are spiritual. They don't believe in organized religion. The way I usually interpret what they're saying to me is they, they, they're spiritual. They just don't want to fool with you folks. Um, they don't want anybody else to bother them. You know, I mean, yeah, all of us love to just, me and Jesus, have our own thing going. And, but these other human beings get involved in our lives and our ministries. And living in community, Christian community, is not easy. We've known that for 2,000 years. So right here in the midst of Paul trying to talk to the church at Corinth about using their gifts, he's really going to get in chapter 14 even more specifically about worship. So he's talking about worship, using your gifts, using your gifts in worship. You've got to use them in a loving way. Um, so yeah, it fascinates me in a wedding when I'm, when I'm reading 1 Corinthians 13. You know, I'm, I always feel like I'm the only one in the room that knows this is about speaking in tongues. Um, but think about the first sentence. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. Uh, so the text is, is pretty clear, but a lot of times people just don't know the context. Okay, look at 1 Corinthians 13. You probably know this well. And notice um, how 1 Corinthians 12 ended. The last sentence was, or is, I, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Uh, you know, when, when Paul wrote these scriptures, he didn't put these numbers in his body of his text. We did this a thousand years later to help us find our way through the text. Um, so sometimes you need to look at what comes before the number. But yeah, that phrase, and I will show you a still more excellent way, is Paul's intro to this paragraph. So here it is. You know it well. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. There were people there in Corinth who obviously believed that, and it may be, that the, the, the gift of speaking in tongues rather as a, a, a message to the body or as a prayer language might be the tongue of angels. 
It may be heavenly language. He's referenced that, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, because he's already been talking about both kinds of tongues being used in worship. Prophecy comes through the tongues of men, humans. Uh, but he's talking about tongues of men and of angels. Uh, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In the Greco-Roman world with all their gods, um, in the worship of Sibylle or Kibylle, and the worship of Dionysius, the wine cult, uh, they made a bunch of noise. They, they banged cymbals and gonged bells. And so these Greeks here in Corinth would have known about religious observances that sounded a lot like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So Paul's saying, if you're not doing what you're doing out of love, uh, then you, your, your great gift that God has given you, whatever that gift is, may just be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And then verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers, and you already have heard that Paul says prophecies, is, he thinks is the most important gift of the Spirit. He's going to talk a lot about prophecy in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the next verse, next chapter. So verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, remember we've talked about word of knowledge, word of wisdom. He says, if I, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, remember he listed that faith is one of the gifts of the Spirit, and we talked about it being super abounding faith, uh, the faith that can move mountains, as he says here. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains... But have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The, the Greek there in verse 3 can be, be burned or boast, either one. Your translation may talk about boasting. Your translation may talk about being burned. Uh, your translation may take the easy way out and talk about both. You're boasting about giving your body to be burned. Um, either way, Paul says, if you, if, you, if you become a martyr for the faith, if you allow yourself to become Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and be burned, but if you don't have love, um, um, you, you gain nothing. So here, beginning at verse 4, 4 through 7 is where we get the picture that Paul paints of what love looks like. That's important. He doesn't define love. The Greco-Roman philosophers would work at defining love. Paul doesn't define love, you notice in this text. He just paints you a picture as to what love looks like, is what he does here. Um, and even before you see the picture, the way he's doing this should tell us something. For us, love is not a feeling. Please know it's not a feeling. That's affection. Love is not a feeling. Love is not fondness for some other person. Um, love is something you choose to do. It's an act of the will. You know, the Greek language has four different words for love. We English really only have one word. Um, you know, I guess you could say that we also have affection and fondness. Um, but that's different than love. I hope you know that affection and love are different. Um, I love to ask couples in premarital counseling to tell me the difference. I've about stopped this because our culture can't do it any longer. But I used to really ask them the question, tell me the difference between love and romance. And they would look at me about the way you're looking at me right now. Because our culture doesn't know the difference. Love is something that you do. You can feel horrible 
you can feel like you're being crucified while you're loving. Um, it's not an affection. It's, it's the deceit. If I were to define, I hate to do this because Paul hesitated to do it, but if, I, if you pushed me to define love from a Christian perspective, I would say it would be, be your seeking the highest good and welfare of another human being. You're seeking the highest good or the welfare of another human being. You're doing what that other human being needs. Now notice, not wants. I learned that raising kids. Sometimes I was most loving to my kids when they thought I was a devil himself. But love is doing for the other human being what seeks that other human being's highest welfare or good. Such as, and of course, we know what our greatest picture of love is, right? Jesus crucified. He was having no warm feelings up there on the cross, but he was pouring out love. He was doing what the other needed um, for their highest good, the highest welfare. So that's why Paul doesn't define love. He, he paints a picture as what it looks like. Now, for those of you, and some of you are older than I am, you remember when the King James Version was used more frequently than it is now. Do you remember then the King James Version? This does not even, First Corinthians 13 doesn't use the word love in the King James Version, right? Shake your head, agree with me, right. What's the word in King James? Not love, it is charity, thank you. Charity, and there's days I think we should resurrect that word because at least charity implies it's something you got to do. It's not just something you feel, some way you feel. That's why King James doesn't use the word love here. It uses charity. Cause, and we really don't know of love being anything else in the Christian tradition. Love is when I choose to do the kind, great thing for you that helps seek your highest good and welfare. Um, so that's sort of what love is. But it's always, always a verb. It's never an emotion. It's always a verb. It's something we choose to do. It's an act of the will. That's why, by the way, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You can love somebody you don't like, right? I can take you to the hospital and get you cared for, you know, if I want to be the person that put the bullet in you. I can still do that. I, I can love you. I can do that which seats your eyes good, even if I don't particularly like you. And that's why love is an act of the will in the Christian community. Again, I, I love to ask couples to define the difference between love, romance, and I usually ask them lust. What's the difference between love, romance, and lust? And, you know, I, I, I hesitate to even do that now because our culture re really doesn't know the difference between those. Uh, but anyway, look at how Paul paints a picture of love. Love is patient and kind. Again, Patient, and by the way, there's two Greek words for patience. The word patient here is not the Greek word for patient with circumstances. It's the Greek word for patient with other people. So love is patient and kind. It's, it's doing something. Love does, not, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. We're going to go back and look at these characteristics in a moment. It is not arrogant or rude. You know, there is absolutely, you know, I, I was telling the staff this morning, you know, if I really want to create controversy in a sermon, you know, the easy, and, it's not, and, I, and it's not the preacher saying things you think would create controversy. If I were to start talking about um, how, how careful we need to be with sports because competition is not a Christian virtue, 
Yeah, I get I get remarks back about that. Competition is not a Christian virtue. Speaking your mind is not a Christian virtue. Self control is. Um, speaking your mind may or may not be, because again, you want to be patient, you want to be kind, you don't want to be rude. Um, but some people think they're they're proud of the fact they always speak their mind. They always you always know where they stand. And sometimes I'm going to say, I, I haven't asked. I don't want to know. Um, sometimes the most loving thing is when you can keep your mouth shut. Self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Remember Paul's list, fruit of the Spirit, self-control is. Um, there's a lot of things. Even, even our temper. Over the years, I've noticed some people, they won't say it this way, but they really are proud of their temper. Because in their mind or heart, probably, they think it's their temper that has kept them from being run over throughout life. It's their temper that's kept them from being a doormat. It's their temper. And, and most of us do what we do because we, we, we receive some benefit from it. And some people, they, there are certain benefits they think they're gleaning from their temper, their harshness, their directness, their bluntness, even their rudeness. Um, all of that I would at least call into question. You know, as you're evaluating your life in Christ, uh, think about all these things our culture tends to esteem. Uh, but notice here, Paul says, it is not arrogant or rude. It does, some people I think enjoy being rude. You know, I, I don't get it. It does not insist on its own way. Uh, another way of translating that is, it doesn't always insist on its own rights. You know, in our culture today, we made that into an art form to make sure that I get what's due me. I get my rights. Um, but it doesn't always insist on its own way or insist on its own rights. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And I'm going to go back to these in just a second. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Um, you can go to the uh, beginning of verse Eight, love never ends, um, and include that as one of the characteristics. Anyway, that's Paul's list, and most of your commentaries uh, will go into great extent explaining the Greek words for each of these characteristics to help you know what it is Paul is esteeming here. Uh, what I want to do is um, I want to read you that list out of a couple contemporary translations. Uh, you know, this is written in Greek, and anytime you translate English, it's an interpretation. Um, you know, some, some translations of the Bible try to do uh, as closely as word for word as possible. Uh, some translations choose to do thought for thought. I mean, sometimes when you're translating the Greek or the Hebrew, you can try to get it in a word as close as possible, or you can just try to capture the meaning. Sometimes we know what the biblical author is saying, even though it's hard to explain it in the words they're using. So uh, here's two contemporary translations I like. I would always encourage you to go to these last, you know, because these are thought-for-thought -thought translations. Um, they're not technically paraphrases uh, because the, these translations are created going from the original language to, to English. A paraphrase is when somebody like... Um, 
Kenneth Taylor sits down with the King James Version of the Bible in English and translates it and makes the Living Bible. That's a paraphrase. So if, you use, if you're going from the um, original language in English, it's technically not a paraphrase, but you can go from the original language into English and, and just be working to get at the thought of what Paul's saying. So let me offer this to you from a couple um, contemporary translations. This is the, uh, the Passion Translation. It's fairly new. It's only been done in uh, New Testament Psalms and Proverbs, I believe. But in the Passion Translation, this is the way this list is characterized. And by the way, as I read these, I want to offer you um, a really interesting exercise. You know, as Christians, one of the parts of our rich tradition is that um, uh, at, at the end of the day, we do a moral inventory of our day. Uh, we look back over our day and we try to say, how did we do? Uh, were, were we faithful disciples in Christ? If you've do, ever done the walk to Emmaus, that little purple book gives you uh, the questions to help you have a moral inventory at the end of the day. Um, another exercise to help you evaluate how you're doing is here in 1 Corinthians 13, everywhere you see the word love, take the word love out and put your name in there. You know, and... and, and and see how it sounds. Like for me to read, um, Jeff is patient and kind. Jeff does not envy or boast. Jeff is not arrogant or rude. Jeff does not insist on his own way. Um, my wife would give me a run for my money if she heard me doing that. But it's a good evaluation to compare yourself to what Paul is lifting up here. So kind of think about that. Think about how this does or doesn't describe you. So just the uh, characteristics of love. This comes from the Passion Translation. Love is large and incredibly patient. Love is gentle um, and consistently kind to all. It refuses to be jealous when blessing comes to someone else. Love does not brag about one's achievement nor inflate its own importance. Love does not traffic in shame and disrespect, nor selfishly seeks its own honor. Love is not easily irritated or quick to take offense. Love joyfully celebrates honesty and finds no delight in what's wrong. Love is a self-place of shelter, for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as defeat, for it never gives up. One more. This is Eugene Peterson, and this has been out for quite a while, so some of you may own this. This is Eugene Peterson's uh, translation called The Message. And again, it's thought for thought, not word for word, but he was a good Greek scholar, so he, he did a good job. Here's the way he translates or paints this picture. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. I've always had this image that when this letter was being read to the church at Corinth, 
that when the person reading Paul's letter got to this point, that the room was very silent because they, they knew that they just didn't get close to uh, looking like this image of love. So just to wrap it up, um, verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, we're going to talk some more about that, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge or words of knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, and I need to say a word about that, the partial will pass away. Um, when the perfect comes, you know, I've talked about cessationists. Those were the people, and there's not as many as there used to be. Those are the people who said that when, when um, the New Testament was complete, the documents in the New Testament were complete and given to the church, all of these gifts faded away. That's how they define perfect. Um, one of the reasons there's not as many cessationists now is it's pretty clear that's not what Paul means here. Uh, what he means by these things will fade away when the perfect comes um, most all of us now agree he's talking about the return of Christ. He's talking about the end of the kingdom. He's talking about the end of the age. Yeah, we don't need a whole lot of this stuff when, when the end of the age comes. So that's why he's saying, uh, but when the perfect comes, the partial, and that's all these gifts, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He's trying to get the church of Corinth to grow up a little bit. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Uh, Corinth was actually a place where mirrors were produced in the Greco-Roman world. Now, if you remember your history, um, mirrors as you know mirrors were not invented until the 13th century. Mirrors in the ancient world was just polished bronze. So you had a reflection, but it wasn't a good reflection. That's why that's the best they had for mirrors. Um, so when you looked in a mirror... In the ancient world, you had a reflection, but you did not see clearly. So Paul's saying that that's an analogy about our, what we know. You know, some people think they know everything always. Paul's saying, be careful. Uh, when you know everything that you can know in this life is still looking, it's still like looking in an ancient mirror. There, it, you see something, and you may recognize it to be you. You may recognize it to be you close enough you can fix your hair a little bit. But it's not a good reflection. It's not clear. That's the only mirrors they had in the ancient world. So he said, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So he's, talk he's talking about the end of history. He's talking about the end of the age. When, when the age is consummated and the Christ returns and the kingdom's complete, we will, well, by the way, we'll never be omniscient. Only God's omniscient. We will never know everything, but we'll know, we'll know all we need to know when that time comes. And then, of course, the climax. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. You won't need faith in heaven. Uh, you won't need hope in heaven. It'll be realized. Love will still be present there. That's why he's saying faith, hope, and love um, all three of these abide to the greatest of these. The most lasting of these is love because the faith and the hope will fade away one day. You won't need it anymore. Uh, but love will still be part and parcel of what heaven is. Two last comments um, to get you, now get you out of here. Obviously, as soon as you read this text, 
um, in the Christian community reminds you of first back to Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus. That's why it's our ideal. It's a picture of Jesus. Um, you know, I've never preached this text without talking about Jesus, which is a good, pretty good Christian practice. So Paul, of course, has Jesus in mind when he paints this picture. Now, in recent years, I've ran across more New Testament scholars who like to point out, and I think there's validity here, that to a certain extent, as best as frail human beings can do, this had to somewhat paint a picture of Paul also. Because Paul's writing this, sending it to the church at Corinth. We have no record of the church at Corinth saying, Paul, give me a break. You're the absolutely worst person we've ever seen. And one of the reasons scholars now are beginning to say this to a certain extent, for Paul to say this with integrity, they have to at least have seen Paul strive for this. But um, one of the reasons I'm seeing scholars say that today is in the last 20 years, 30 years, it's become almost um, in vogue. It's become almost chic to um, condemn Paul, to dislike Paul, to, to disrespect Paul. You know, most people think Paul's personality was, was horrible. And he, he had an attitude. There are, we see places in the New Testament where he let his temper get out of hand. Um, like in um, Galatians, when he's talking about the people who are forcing... This is in there. This can be your homework in Galatians. You go find it. I'm not going to tell you which chapter it is. In Galatians, where he's writing about the people who are making Christians be circumcised, and he's so angry because that, that is adding to the gospel. He's so angry, he says there in Galatians, and most English translations clean it up a little bit, but basically what he says there is, I hope that those people who are making you be circumcised would circumcise themselves and the knife would slip. That's in the Bible. Go read Galatians. It is toward the end. So, I mean, we, we know Paul had an edge to him. But Paul, at least to the, to the extent that the church in Corinth listened to him, they had to at least see him striving for this. Jesus was the perfect example of this. But they had to at least to some extent see Paul striving for this. Or they would have ignored what he had to say to him. So this is an interesting text about speaking about speaking in tongues and exercising spiritual gifts. So what time is it? Um, 